Welcome to the State of the Lakers show on Dash Radio. No Raj today, just Jason. Uh, Raj is working as we speak. Fortunately, with my job, I'm flexible enough to make some time to uh, get into the film from the weekend. A little bit of scheduling info for this week. We will have this show uh, posted on our podcast feed shortly and will air on Dash Radio tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Then on Wednesday morning, we're recording a show that will cover Tuesday night's game, which will be very important because LeBron, Russ, and AD will all play together for the first time. So we will, uh, like I said, break that down on Wednesday. That'll air on Thursday morning on Dash Radio. And then Thursday night is the last preseason game for the Lakers. And that will be the last, or that will be the first game this year where, where Raj and I will do one of our post game shows, uh, which will be fun because we'll give you guys a chance to hop on and uh, talk some basketball with us uh, rather than just Raj and I droning on for 45 minutes. Uh, nonstop. So that'll be fun. Looking forward to it. And then from there, the vast majority of our shows during the regular season will be post-game shows, um, just like we did to end last year. Anyway, today I wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of the last two preseason games and the stuff that I noticed on film um, to kind of stay overarching to start. Again, I'm going to continue to harp on this, uh, for the, for the, especially coming into this last week of the preseason. Don't pay attention to the final result. The Lakers are, are, are not, haven't even attempted to play their best lineups, which will include their three best players. And in addition to that, they're just testing a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of feeling each other out on the offensive end of the floor, which ironically has been the problem in the preseason. There's been a lot of talk um, coming into this year that the uh, the defensive end would be the problem for this team. And ironically, here in the early going, I'm actually pretty encouraged by the defense. It, the offense just looks sloppy, which is a factor of a lot of different things. Star's not playing. Uh, Russ has been absolutely horrible so far on the offensive end, which we'll talk about. Anthony Davis still can't make a jump shot. And LeBron James, who I believe is the best offensive force of this era, literally has only played in one game. So not too much to take away there. There have been enough pockets of dominance, enough little bits of of really good Laker basketball to keep me encouraged, like the 13-0 run in the middle of the second quarter against Phoenix last night where they turned a 40-28 to deficit into a 41-40 to lead, including some fantastic defense and uh, um, running the floor in transition and getting high-quality looks. And if you're looking for one last kind of overarching positive theme to, uh, uh, to kind of give you a glass-half-full approach to the Lakers' record so far in the preseason, it's the fact that they have a 105.7 defensive rating with Anthony Davis on the floor. Um, he's played in three games, and I think he's played about 22 minutes per game-ish. Uh, so call it 60-something minutes. And last year, they had the best defensive rating in the league at 106.8 in their 105.7 with Anthony Davis on the floor so far in the preseason. So translation, they can guard still so far, at least in the preseason. So that's something to take as just a, a, a little a little a positive uh, nugget take moving forward. Again, tomorrow night against, I think it's Golden State at home with LeBron, Russ, and AD to play. That'll be the first time that we can kind of get a real look at what some of the best Laker lineups will look like, which will include their best players. Anthony Davis has already said he plans on playing the five with that group. 
which is really good because that's going to allow the Lakers to have more space to operate, which is absolutely imperative with Russ. So on that note, let's get started with Russell Westbrook because that's kind of where all of the talk is after these first two games. You know, as is usually the case, there's a lot of good and bad, which has been the story with Russ throughout his entire career, the, the give and the take, you know, as, as we like to call it. The, let's start with some good. On the defensive end of the ball, with exception of a handful of possessions where he's fallen asleep and or died on screens, which is something he's done kind of periodically over this last half of his career, he's done a good job of being physical at the point of attack, especially on those screens when they end up switching. He does a really good job of getting into the big and boxing out things along those lines. I still think that when his job is simplified, when LeBron and Anthony Davis are on the floor, that he will have an easy enough defensive job that with his physical tools, he'll be able to be very impactful. I tweeted about this earlier. I'm going to make a lot of references in this pod to specific plays in the game. And if you go to my Twitter feed, which is at underscore Jason LT, you will see if you go to tweets and replies and just scroll down, you're going to see dozens and dozens of little clips that I took out and put captions on so you can get a general idea of what I'm talking about. But I'm going to make a reference to a lot of those. So if you want to see them, just go to my Twitter feed in order to see them. Anyway, there was a specific play in particular where Russell Westbrook, I believe, was guarding Landry Shamit, who had already made a three earlier in the game on the first possession. And there was a basic little dribble handoff with Jay Crowder on the right wing. And Russ just... Flat out, he didn't even get caught on the screen. He just didn't try to fight over the top and get to Shamit. Shamit got his feet set and made a wide open three at the top of the key. You know, in the past, when he had tons of offensive responsibility, that was something you could live with. Because at least in that regard, you understood that he had so many responsibilities that it was kind of a fatigue thing. It was a saving energy kind of thing. Like, give up a handful of open shots on one end so that he has the energy to run the offense. On this team, with what you're asking him to do, with all of the talent surrounding him, and with two of the top six or seven players in the entire game of basketball that are in front of you in those responsibilities... Russ needs to be more dialed in on the little things. The same goes for LeBron, who has also in the past had a history of taking possessions off defensively. You can't do that on this team. For one, you're not gaining anything on the other end. They don't need enough out of you offensively to justify that type of trade-off and fatigue. So that kind of thing is the, is the type of stuff from the past few years that Russ is going to need to knock out. And my guess is that with the level of accountability he'll be under here with Anthony Davis and with Frank Vogel, that that's something that he'll be able to to work on. And in general, you know, lackadaisical type of basketball percolates down the roster and you'll see that in games where the energy is low. But then you see in the second quarter when the energy picks up, Russ was fantastic on defense. So the point is, is like I think in general in the regular season in front of packed houses, with the stakes that the Lakers will bring to the table every game as one of the best teams in the league, my guess is he'll be able to knock some of that out, uh, which will be something as a silver lining, like I said, on the defensive end from something that you can take from Russ early here in the season. I wanted to uh, talk for a second about his turnovers. So obviously that's been the hot topic. He had a little quote that was taken out of context last night where he said, you know, keep that same energy in the regular season. And he was joking. That was something that was missing in the tweet that went viral. 
Um, but in general with Russ, the turnovers to me are quite simply a, a, a product of his lack of aggression at the rim. If you look at his shot chart from last night, I believe there are five of his 12 attempts were at the rim and seven of them were from the perimeter in some way, shape, or form. That's just a bad balance for a guy like Russ. And what ended up happening is throughout the last two games, he was passing out of single coverage. The whole point of of playmaking, anything in basketball, you have to break down the defense at some level because no one's just going to give you an open shot for no particular reason at all whatsoever. You either need to beat your man in one-on-one coverage to create a good shot for yourself, or you need to beat your man in one-on-one coverage to an extent that warps the defense so that you can kick to an open shooter or an open guy in the dunker spot. What Russ was doing a lot in the last two games was beating his man in one-on-one coverage, getting a step to the point where he could continue all the way to the rim or take some type of shot, but then after not seeing any help defense, kicking to somebody who was not open, which would either force him to throw away from the defender, which would cause him to throw it out of bounds, or he'd throw directly to the defender. Just by virtue of being more aggressive at the rim, even if you get your shot blocked, even if you miss some layups or miss some floaters, being aggressive to the rim and taking shots there is what's going to cause the defense to warp in so that those same passes that he's turning over are now available. Now, to Russ's credit, he did in the post-game interview specifically mention that. He specifically said that he was passing out of single coverage and that that was something he needed to uh, to address moving forward. It, that kind of overpassing is kind of a natural side effect of coming to a team as a star player when there's this kind of vibe over the whole group, like we need to sacrifice. We need to all give in to the larger goal. So I'm going to take less shots. So I'm going to overpass. I'm going to overpass. What they really need Russ to do when he does have the ball is to be Russell Westbrook because otherwise he's not helping anything. You need to aggressively attack the rim, aggressively try to finish there. Even if you miss layups or or, are blocked, just by bringing the shot blocker over, you're giving Anthony Davis or Dwight Howard a chance at the offensive rebound. Or if you start making stuff there, guys are going to start sucking into help, and then you can start spraying out to your shooters. So I'm not concerned about the turnovers in that regard. It kind of struck me as just a byproduct of trying to be too unselfish, which I don't think will be a problem with Russ in the long run. The next uh, thing I wanted to talk about with Russ was his shot selection. And, you know, this is something that I have a feeling Laker fans are going to be dealing with all season long. And it's going to take some getting used to. And I think there are going to be moments where it's infuriating. The hope would be that in the long run, because of the accountability of LeBron and AD, and because of the fact that the team is so good that he doesn't need to take some of the shots that he took when he was in Houston and when he was in Washington or in Oklahoma City after Kevin Durant left, hopefully he'll be able to rein this in a little bit. What was kind of bizarre about the shot selection was similar to what I complained about with AD, how he tries to find his rhythm by taking difficult shots. Russ does the same thing, but he's not a good shooter. Like Russ is... Never going to be a good shooter. But if he controlled and reined in his shot selection, he could be a he could be effective enough in that jump shooting role that it could not hurt the team, which is what you need. 
But what he's trying to do is what Anthony Davis is doing, gain his rhythm as a jump shooter despite not being a jump shooter. And there were a bunch of times in the first half where early in the shot clock, he would take difficult jump shots that even great shooters would struggle to make. If Steph took this shot, it would be a tougher shot for him. If Dame took the shot, it would be a tougher shot for him. Here's Russ, a proven bad shooter who's not in a rhythm, who doesn't really have anything going with his jump shot, taking early clock tough jump shots to try to build his rhythm. For a player like that, that's akin to throwing away a possession. And that's the kind of thing that the Lakers are going to have to, at some point, try to address with him because it's just not necessary with this level of talent on the roster. I'll give you some examples. There was a play early in the game, kind of posts up on Jay Crowder. It was either Jay Crowder or Mikhail Bridges on the right block. Just not an advantage for him to begin with, but it's early in the clock, and he takes a one-legged fadeaway and leaves it short. That's a tough shot for the best shooters in the game. Again, later on, same thing, kind of runs a pick and roll with Anthony Davis at the top of the key. The defender is fighting over the top of the screen and the big man is kind of showing. It's just not open. And he ends up trying to draw a foul and kicking his leg out. And he actually makes the three, which is the crazy part. But it was early clock and a contested pull-up three off the dribble, off of a ball screen, when Anthony Davis kind of had an opportunity to slip it and make something happen. Again, that is a throwaway possession. It ended up adding up to three points. But it wasn't a good shot by any stretch of the imagination. He took another. He took a, a couple of uh, uh, post-up type of um, turnaround shots that he missed that he tried to bank. And then late in the second quarter, there was one where in transition, after getting a stop, while the team is on a run, he drove along the left side of the floor, got DeAndre Ayton on a switch, and took a one-legged fadeaway, tried to bank it in off the glass, and wasn't even close. Again, a super difficult shot for a great shooter, let alone Russell Westbrook. And those are the kinds of things where when you look at Russ's efficiency, it's not just a product of him missing shots. It's him taking bad shots. The way you, There are two ways to improve your efficiency. Become better at the shots you take and take better shots. And so those are the kinds of things that, uh, that Russ is going to have to clean up in the long run with this team. Again, I'm not... I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to continue to press this idea to the Laker fan base. Let's not really evaluate the Russell Westbrook situation until a couple of months into the season. For starters, they have a really easy schedule to start the year, which will allow them to rack up wins despite playing flawed basketball, which will be important in the long run because as things get tougher, they will have more repetition to to lean back on. And, and and use to hopefully elevate their game to match the the increasing difficulty of their schedule. At the, in the long run, LeBron James, you know, as a problem solver, is going to find a way to use Russ in a better way than what he has been used in, in the previous season. So I'm not too concerned about it. All right, we're going to move on to Anthony Davis. The main thing I want to talk about with Anthony Davis was his defense. Throughout that game against Phoenix last night, he was incredibly vocal and incredibly active with his hands. And his length is such a problem that he presents, uh, uh, he can disrupt plays in a position that usually doesn't disrupt plays. So this is another clip you can find on my Twitter feed. There was a play where DeAndre Jordan 
was in a drop coverage in pick and roll. And I can't remember who the guard was that was guarding the pick and roll, but Anthony Davis was guarding a shooter in the strong side corner, which I believe was Jay Crowder at this point. The strong side corner in, in, uh, a corner in every NBA defense does not help. The reason why the strong side corner doesn't help is NBA shooters are really good, and it's such an easy pass that any ball handler in the NBA, when they see help coming from the strong side corner, can push the ball out there and get a good look. So the vast majority of NBA teams help from the weak side corner and try to make teams make really difficult cross-court passes. In this play, Anthony Davis was able to close in and help and shut down Chris Paul in the pick and roll. Chris Paul made the easy, simple pass to the corner, and Anthony Davis still closed out and completely swallowed up Jay Crowder in the corner, took away the shot, and blew up the possession. That kind of thing just doesn't happen in the NBA. There's just there's only a handful of guys on the on planet Earth that are capable of that type of covering ground on the defensive end. And it was an interesting thing because you know, we harp on a lot with the pros and cons of Anthony Davis playing at the 5, right? And most of them have to do with the offensive end, right? On the offensive end of the floor with AD at the 5, there's just more space to operate. Also, last year in particular, we didn't have mobile centers. Marcus All was slow. Andre Drummond was capable, but was really inconsistent with his effort. Montrezl Harrell at moments was flat out bad uh, as a pick and roll type of defender. He was better defending in space than he was defending in screen and roll. And so it made so much more sense to play as much AD at the five as you could because of those limitations. Now they didn't, and that was something that infuriated me all year. But one of the reasons why this year... I love the idea of shifting back to a 2020 ratio, of meaning the ratio from the 2020 season where AD spends about half his minutes at the four and half of his minutes at the five is these types of vertical threats. These DeAndre Jordan and Dwight Howard types actually fit really well alongside Anthony Davis on the defensive end of the floor because they are so mobile and because they have that vertical presence. And it allows Anthony Davis to be a help defender where he can be absolutely disruptive, kind of kind of in a freakish way that, that you could tell really threw Phoenix out of rhythm with their offense, a team that had been absolutely humming so far in the preseason. And that's the kind of wrinkle that I like with Anthony Davis at the four. Again, everything should be prioritized around AD at the five because it's the only thing that's going to make Russ usable. Okay, but as a curveball, I like AD at the four, particularly next to Dwight, but also next to DeAndre Jordan, because they can play basic drop coverage. And if the guards do their job over the top and Anthony Davis is in help, they're going to overwhelm a lot of teams just with their length and size, especially when you throw LeBron into the picture there. So I, I do I do like it as a curveball just in general, in terms of strategy, when we're talking about, you know, when to go with AD at the five, when to play Russ and when to play DeAndre Jordan, you got to really think about the aggregate athleticism and the aggregate spacing. This is something that I talk about literally all the time on this pod. There is a fine line to where you dip so far down with your shooting that the spacing falls apart with your offense. Whereas if you're above that line, then your stars have enough room to operate. And the same thing goes with defense and athleticism. You know, you can hide Ellington with a really, really gifted defensive group. Ellington was on the floor with that Laker group that defended at such a high level in the second quarter and went on a 13-0 run. 
But if you put Ellington around other limited defenders, then you dip below that line of aggregate defensive talent, aggregate athleticism, and suddenly it kind of seems like he's getting exposed. You guys see what I'm saying? That is the kind of thing that that kind of balance is something we're going to have to watch all season. couple really simple solutions as far as, as far as spacing goes. I really like two big lineups when Russ isn't on the floor. Because then at the end of the day, you could theoretically put a ball handler with the center and AD will space the floor. And just because if those other three, if AD does have the ball or is involved in the action, if your other three players are all really good shooters, then the aggregate spacing is good enough for Anthony Davis to be able to go to work. So with Russell Westbrook on the floor, you kind of can't play a center because of the way that that aggregate spacing dips too far low. And, and the same thing goes with the defensive end of the floor. DeAndre Jordan, I don't think he can play center unless Anthony Davis is out there with him because the totality of that defense, it just makes DeAndre Jordan cover so much more ground. It makes DeAndre Jordan's job tougher. And at this phase of his career, he's just not good enough to be able to do that. And so if you pair DeAndre Jordan with Anthony Davis when you need to play DeAndre Jordan, again, my preference would be he only plays when Dwight has to sit or when Anthony Davis has to sit. But if you're going to play him in the rotation, put him next to Anthony Davis so he's set up to succeed. Because in that simplified role, his athleticism will be a problem. But those are the kinds of delicate balances that they're going to have to kind of uh, toe that line throughout this season. When can you play Russ to where the spacing isn't neutered? When can you play DeAndre Jordan so that his defensive responsibilities don't become too complicated and then he starts to struggle? But in general, I just wanted to give a little shout out to Anthony Davis's defense because he was extremely vocal, flying all over the floor, disrupting everything. His ball pressure was incredible. Um, I tweeted about this in one of those clips, but one of the things that allows a rotating chaotic defense to succeed is ball pressure when you apply ball pressure even if there is a wide open man if you make the offensive player make a pass fake before he can throw the pass or if he has to throw some crazy looping like hook pass to get over the top of your length it allows your team enough time to recover and get back into the play and then reset your defense and that that sort of thing, if it, it, that type of rotation depends on all of those factors. You need ball pressure and you need guys sprinting on the backside. If the guys don't sprint on the backside, it won't work. If the guy doesn't apply ball pressure on the ball, it won't work. It's kind of all of that has to come together. And it did in that second quarter. If you watched in that second quarter run, they, the Lakers did a fantastic job of pushing the ball out. There were so many Suns possessions where there'd be four or five seconds on the shot clock and they're dribbling out at 30 feet or stuck with a uh, stuck without their dribble, pivoting all over the place, looking for an outlet pass because of ball pressure and because of that chaotic rotation. And it all started with Anthony Davis. So I wanted to give him that shout out. So we're going to move on to uh, Kent Bazemore. Kent Bazemore, according to Frank Vogel, has been the guard that has separated himself defensively from the rest of the group in training camp so far. That's just taking it from his words, not mine. But when you watch the film, it all backs that up. And one of the biggest problems for the Lakers defense in the early going in the preseason has been guards dying on screens. The Lakers have no intention of switching screens with guys like Malik Monk, Kendrick Nunn, Rajon Rondo, so on and so forth. That was never the idea. That was never the plan. However, 
dozens and dozens of times here in the first four games, we've seen them have to do that. And the reason why is those guys are dying on the screens. They're getting caught. And then the big essentially has to switch out to guard the guard. And then Aiton or whoever the big man is, is diving down the lane. Now we have rebounding mismatches. Now we have post-up mismatches like we saw against Brooklyn. There's a lot of trouble that gets caused when those screens end up getting switched. Those, all of those guards that I mentioned have to get better at that. Baysmore has done a fantastic job here in the preseason of fighting over the top of every screen and getting back into the play. You know, we complain about drop cover, drop coverage a lot. Raj and I did in the postseason, especially when it came to teams guarding Phoenix and well, I should say Milwaukee. We complained a lot about Milwaukee because at the beginning of the Hawks series and at the beginning of the Phoenix series, they stayed in this drop coverage and got absolutely torched by Trey Young and by, and by Chris Paul in pick and roll. When there was an obvious and simple answer to that, they needed to, to, to play a different pick and roll coverage. But the reason why is because when that screen comes and, and hits the on-ball defender, if the on-ball defender gets caught and the big is sitting under the basket, all day long, you're going to have wide open 15-footers and floaters all day long. For Chris Paul, it's kind of like a step back three. For Trey Young, it's a, it's a floater or trying to draw a foul on the guy chasing behind, that kind of thing, right? But when you chase over the top successfully, which Drew Holiday started to do as that series progressed in both cases, and you're able to bother the ball handler from behind, all of a sudden, that floater and that jump shot are no longer an option. And so now your only option is to drive into the center who's waiting for you at the rim. That's why drop coverage works. Drop coverage works when you can apply back pressure on the jump shooter, and then you have a giant human waiting under the basket, who's going to make anything you attempt there difficult and takes away the lob pass in that, in that respect. So, Bazemore has been the only defender, perimeter defender so far this preseason that has allowed the Lakers to stay in their actual traditional drop coverage that plays right into Dwight Howard's strengths, that plays right into DeAndre Jordan's strengths. So, there's a couple of things to take away from that. One it goes to show you where the area of improvement is for the other guards. But two, it goes to show you that Bazemore is the clear early shoe-in for the closing five. We're going to talk a lot this year about what the best lineup the Lakers can throw out to win games is. And it's going to start around Russ, LeBron, and AD, but then there's going to be two additional spots. I believe it's going to be Bazemore and Ariza. Ariza is just your rock-solid defensive forward who has the ability to knock down an open shot, which is all you can ask for. It's the same reason why teams pay P.J. Tucker. It's the same reason teams pay pay Robert Covington. That's what you're asking from from Trevor Ariza. He's a reliable piece in that regard. But Bazemore, because of his ability to fight over the top of these screens and to to provide good point-of-attack defense, his effort level has been outstanding through through the beginning of the preseason. That makes him an easy shoe-in for that fifth spot here early on. He has shot the ball 38% from three so far in preseason. He shot better from three last year with Golden State. Um, So I'm not worried about him in that regard. There is a possibility that over the course of the season, you might see somebody like Malik Monk progress enough on the defensive end to be a better option. You might see Wayne Ellington progress enough on the defensive end that he could be a better option given what they bring offensively. But here in the early going, I think there's a pretty comfortable gap in what you can expect. 
and uh, what you can expect from that specific position as a fifth starter. And that's the, that's the uh, not a fifth starter, but as a fifth closing lineup guy. But that's the key difference here when you're talking about that lineup. You don't need anything out of that fourth and fifth closer other than a guy who can lock up defensively and knock down an open shot and do basic stuff attacking closeouts. That's all you need. You don't need him to run, pick, and roll. LeBron and Russ got that covered. You don't need him to post up mismatches. Anthony Davis and LeBron and Russ got that covered. There's no need for anything out of that position other than defense and some enough shooting to be able to keep the defense honest. That's really all you need. And so far, Bazemore is the clear leader in that regard. So let's talk about Austin Reeves. This has been an interesting kind of surprise so far here in the preseason. For starters, he he's a lot bigger than the other options that the Lakers have at guard, not counting Bazemore. All of these guys, like Ellington, is six foot four, but he's not very mobile. Malik Monk is six foot three, but he's very thin. You know, Kendrick Nunn is stocky and strong, but he's only six foot two, and he's not overly laterally quick. So there's kind of a a little bit of an opportunity for when Frank gets frustrated with the lack of physical tools of his guards, there's a little bit of an opportunity to be an option, an option for Frank to lean on, especially with the Ariza injury and the THT injury. And Austin Reeves seems to be kind of like forcing his way into that spot, being that other option for Frank to have a bigger, more athletic defender when the other guys are getting bullied. And uh, there's a lot to take away from him that's good. For starters, he's been shooting the ball really well. He's been shooting over 40% from three in the preseason. But he just his effort and focus on the defensive end has been excellent so far. He's been really good locking and trailing around guys and avoiding getting screened. He's done his help responsibilities well in pick and roll. He's done a good job when he does get caught on the screen of getting back to the big and boxing him out of the paint, which is something a smaller guy like a Malik Monk is going to struggle with. Again, he's young. He's probably not going to get a ton of playing time. He's not likely to have anywhere near the explosive ability that you're going to get from a Malik Monk or a Kendrick Nunn. However, he's just another option. It's a group like nobody was expecting Austin Reeves to be somebody that the Lakers would have playing meaningful minutes this year. I don't think any of us expected that. We all expected he'd be on a two-way contract. Now he's on a real contract, and so far in the preseason, he's looked good enough to me that if you put him out there with good players like LeBron and AD and Russ, I think he's usable. And that's just another depth piece for the Lakers, a team that kind of needs it in with, after the THT injury and, and the Ariza injury. So it's something to be excited about for sure. So uh, kind of to uh, um, piggyback off the injury thing that I was talking about, there's been a lot of concern about the THT injury in particular. I have said that Ariza probably won't come back until January because it's a two-month injury. My guess is they'll be extra caution, cautious with him, so give it another month. Uh, Malik Monk has a groin issue that's going to take him out a week. I would assume he'll be ready for the the season opener, which is a week from tomorrow. But be careful with him. There's just no point rushing, uh, rushing him back, especially with a groin injury. Um, and we all know how that can affect the mobility of a player. Uh, but THT in particular was one of the reasons you guys remember Raj uh, earlier this week or last week. Raj was big on the fact that THT would be able to slot into the Ariza minutes because of his big 
um, body, strong body, and his ability to guard wings. And so him out of the picture kind of throws a wrinkle into things. But this is where all that depth is advantageous. This is where Austin Reeves, being someone who's capable of playing small forward, kind of adds to uh, adds to the versatility of that group and gives them the ability to weather the storm through these injuries. You guys know I've been harping on all summer. I wish they'd sign Wesley Matthews. I genuinely think he's the perfect 15th man on this roster because of his professionalism and because of his ability to guard guys who are bigger and because of the fact that he's just a smart basketball player who's not going to make too many mistakes, even if he doesn't particularly shoot the ball that well. I hope they sign Wes. But even if they don't, having Austin Reeves kind of fill into that role is a big deal. If you look at it, even with the Monk and THT injuries, you've still got Russell Westbrook, you've still got um, um, Kendrick Nunn, you've still got Austin Reeves, you've still got Wayne Ellington, and you even have Rondo if you absolutely need him in that regard, and you got Bazemore. So I've got six guards that can still play NBA basketball with these guys, even with the injuries to, uh, uh, to Monk and THT. So that's something to just kind of as a glass half full type of attitude from those injuries. Um, all right, a couple more things. We're going to talk about DeAndre Jordan. And then uh, what I want you guys to look for in the last two games uh, that we have with that LeBron plans on playing in. So DeAndre Jordan, again, when he's with Anthony Davis and his job is simplified, he's kind of a pain in the ass for other teams because of his size and athleticism and because his sim- he's not asked to do much. If you let him float around the paint and you let him just be a presence around the rim, he's going to be more effective than when he has to cover a ton of ground and when he doesn't have the, the, the shrunken floor brought by Anthony Davis in, in his length. You know, uh, in general, yesterday, I thought he looked pretty good. Uh, but he was played primarily in lineups that were advantageous to his strengths. You know, as, as I've said multiple times in the podcast in the last few weeks, ideally, I'd prefer him not to play at all. And then what's nice is you have a defensive scheme. And the defensive scheme is built around what Dwight Howard and Anthony Davis can do. So if you need to play a third center because AD's taking a night off or because Dwight Howard's hurt or because Dwight Howard's just resting, you can play the same scheme with DeAndre Jordan. That was the whole point of that signing in my, in my personal opinion. However, if he ends up playing significantly, consistently throughout the season, I'd prefer to see him partnered up with AD because this year, when he's been next to AD, he's actually been pretty good, which is something I expected. Uh, uh, even after his ugly moments in, um, even after his ugly moments in Brooklyn. Okay, so LeBron has said that he's going to play in the last two preseason games, or rather, Frank has said that LeBron is going to play in the last two preseason games, which means that tomorrow night against Golden State is going to be the first time that we get to see LeBron, AD, and Russ all together at the same time on the floor. These are, these are the, the couple of things that I want you guys to keep an eye on. First of all, what does Westbrook do when LeBron has the ball off ball? There, there are a bunch, a, a bunch of theories about, and I've picked the brains of several basketball people that I trust about what would be your approach in this case. And I've heard a bunch of different things. Um, I've heard use him as a screener. This is one of the most common things that I do when I'm playing pickup and I happen to be on a team with a guy who's a non-threat. If you put him off the ball... It, it, it just it doesn't help anything. So what I'll have him do is I'll have him come up and just repeatedly set ball screens. And I just tell him, hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. I don't care if he set an illegal screen, just hit him. Because at least at that point, you're serving some purpose. 
you're deflecting one defender away from me so I can do something with the other defender. Off ball, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. That's an interesting way to potentially use Russ. Have him come up and set the ball screen and basically do, pull, play the, the Draymond role. They're going to ignore Russ on the ball screen. So when LeBron comes off the ball screen or when Malik Monk comes off the ball screen, they're probably going to trap. Then you just dump it or throw a quick pocket pass or quick release to Russ and let him barrel down the lane like Draymond Green barrel down the lane like Draymond Green used to do with the Warriors and make that kick out pass. Let him play four on three in that regard. Uh, that's one interesting way to use him. Two, I'm actually pro Russ taking wide open catch and shoot threes. One, you don't have to be that efficient in that regard for it to be a relatively efficient possession. If he shoots, think of it like this. If he shoots 32% from from three on wide open catch and shoot threes, which is definitely achievable for even a shooter like him, that amounts to an effective field goal percentage of, what's that, 48%? Uh, if If my math is correct, pretty sure that's right. So 48% effective field goal percentage. That's not the end of the world in a possession where uh, they're ignoring Russ on the wing. And maybe if you're lucky through better shot selection, he shoots a little bit better, you know, 33%, 34% on wide open shots. Now we're ticking into over 50% effective field goal percentage. Now we're talking about a really good possession. That's one way to do it. The last thing that I'd like to see Russ do off the ball when he's being ignored is just attack like crazy. You know, with that original example that I gave with pickup, one of the reasons why I don't like having that guy off the ball is because he's literally not a threat. Russ is not a non-threat. He's just a non-shooting threat. So if he gets the ball at the three-point line and no one's there and he just screams down the lane as fast as he can, that type, it's kind of like Russ in transition. That type of rim pressure will naturally collapse the defense at which point he can make extra kickouts to extra shooters from there. It's just a, it's something I'd like to see them try uh, over the course of the season when Russ gets ignored. Just catch it and go. You know, even if you barrel into the lane and, and knock somebody over, you put the, 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 the possession in the ref's hands and make him make a call potentially. You know, it, it just in general, it leads to that rim pressure, that paint to great that Frank always talks about that leads to open shots for other people. It's just another wrinkle that I'd like to see them try. Um, the other thing I'm really curious to see is the defense of the big three. You know, we've already talked about how the defense with Anthony Davis on the floor has actually been pretty good. And we've already talked about how Westbrook has had moments where he's looked pretty good defensively. LeBron continues to be one of the best backline defenders in the league as just a communicator and a guy who disrupts plays underneath the rim. It's also, as we're talking about aggregate athleticism, that's a, a great deal of athleticism. Having Russ, LeBron, and AD on the floor at the same time should physically be something that no team in the league can match. And so I'm really curious to see what that looks like, just especially if they, if, if they manage to allow a certain amount of physicality and, that, and those three guys are just beating guys up all over the floor. I'm really curious to see what that looks like. It's something um, that'll be fun to watch tomorrow night. And then last but not least is Westbrook's shot selection. So a certain amount of what Russ was doing in the first two games that he played had to do with the lack of the third star, right? Like Russ was making all the decisions against Phoenix last night because LeBron wasn't playing. You know, Russ was struggling a lot in the first game that he played, you know, maybe because Anthony Davis wasn't there. 
I would like to see what his shot selection looks like when he's playing with LeBron and AD because it should be more reserved. And it'll be interesting to see if he comes out with the same recklessness that I talked about earlier in the pod. That's a concern because you're playing with LeBron and AD. Your your game should be adjusted to what you're playing with. You know, you, you guys see on my Twitter feed, I'm always showing me making these crazy shots, right? When I go play pickup. I don't take those crazy shots as anywhere near as often when I'm playing with a good group of guys. My men's league that I play with on Sundays, I might take one or two of those in an entire game because my men's league that I play with on Sundays has six dudes who used to play in college on my team. So we play real basketball. We look for quality shots. (laughs) You know, I adjust my shot selection for the group of guys that I play with. When I go play pickup later this afternoon or tomorrow, if I go there and I'm playing with a bunch of guys who can't shoot or can't do anything, then yeah, on tougher shots. It's, it's an adjustment. But just in general, it'll be curious to see what Russ's shot selection looks like with that group of guys tomorrow night, whether or not he keeps it in reserve or whether he continues his craziness. All right, that's all we have for today, guys. On Wednesday morning, we'll be recording... A, uh, a show that covers the Tuesday night game against Golden State. And then on Thursday night, a post-game show, a first post-game show of the season for Raj and I after their final preseason game. I'm looking forward to that. As always, I appreciate your guys' support. This will be on the podcast feed shortly, and we'll see you guys in a couple days.